Good morning, my friends, and welcome to yet another incredible installment. From high above all other puerile and insipid forms of Wyoming mainstream media, this is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the program. A quick breeze through any online news site, at least the credible ones, would reveal any number of stories about a company that went woke and is starting to pay the price for it, quite literally. If companies are in the business of making money, like I am, why would they do this? Well, there's only one logical explanation. It's not because they believe in all of this woke stuff. It's because they believe that they are on the right side of history. That in the final analysis, they'll be proven correct. That consumers actually do believe in all of this stuff, and that the company will be rewarded for their stances on all of these very important issues. The truth is that there's just a bunch of these left-wing marketing outfits that are telling companies that this is what consumers believe, and if they don't get on the woke bandwagon, they'll be left behind. If you need any evidence of this, look what's happening to Bud Light. Before April of this year, Bud Light was the number one beer sold in America. You could go to any bar in America, and you'd find probably the majority of people had a Bud Light in their hand. And then they made a serious miscalculation and created a special beer can for social media transgender star Dylan Mulvaney. They didn't create a giant marketing campaign. They didn't ship millions of cans of Bud Light with Mulvaney's picture on it. All they did was create a special can, and then they sent it to him. He, of course, got on his YouTube channel, or wherever it is that he publishes all of this stuff, and thanked Bud Light profusely. That was all it took. Since that time... Bud Light has lost billions of dollars in their market share. They're no longer the number one beer in America, and their sales continue to decline. But the question is, why is all of that happening? If it is true that Bud Light is on the right side of history, then their new beer can ought to resonate with all Bud Light drinkers. But it's not, because they were profoundly mistaken. Budweiser isn't alone in all of this. The most recent victim was Target, when they stupidly put an LGBTQ display right by their cash register so everybody could see them. There are two Target stores in Wyoming. One of them is in Casper, and then the other is in Cheyenne. The Casper store moved that display all the way to the back of the store. The Cheyenne branch, however, kept it right by the cash registers. So obviously these companies believe in what they're doing. I mean, they have to at least a little bit. Or they wouldn't be doing it. Or it's all virtue signaling and they don't really believe in what they're doing at all. Look at us. Aren't we inclusive? You should buy our product. Think about it. Companies like Nike and Apple continue to use nearly slave labor from China to build their products. One of the factories that Nike operates in China is manned almost entirely by an ethnic minority known as the Uyghurs. Basically, they get their labor from a concentration camp. It was not that long ago that a factory that produces iPhones from a company called Foxconn had a huge rash of suicides. The company's response to this huge number of people that were jumping to their death to put up a net to catch them so they didn't die on the way down. 
And yet, these are two of the companies that would lecture you about not being inclusive enough. They're the ones that run commercials that are all LGBTQ friendly and have nothing really but a whole bunch of rainbows and platitudes to tell you what the values of that company are. So you will choose to spend your money with them and not somebody else. There's a couple of things that are at play here. The first is woke capitalism, or to put it another way that you may have heard of, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. The company has to project a certain value set in order to get financing. Just look at the top five investors in Target, Vanguard, Capital Research and Management, SSGA Funds, and BlackRock. All of them are heavily involved in ESG. Take, for example, Capital Research Management. On March 31st, they bought 4.3 million shares of Target. Why did they do that? I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with them knowing that Target was going to be making a major ESG push in the very near future. The only thing is, it backfired on them. Even if you're not involved in the stock market, everyone has heard the phrase, buy low, sell high. But they didn't do that. They bought 4.3 million shares before this huge boycott happened. A classic miscalculation. So they either were banking that you would spend more money at Target, or it has something entirely different to do with the whole equation. That is ESG and their virtue signaling. They have to show these giant ESG companies like BlackRock and others that they are fully committed to all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion crap. In any case, it's been a blast to watch this self-implosion at all of these companies. The second thing that is actually going on with all of these companies is fear. Fear of a very loud, very well-funded lobby. Nobody really wants to be perceived as not being inclusive. They don't want big, giant demonstrations outside of their corporate headquarters. And that's exactly what the far left would do to them. But to be very clear, none of these companies even halfway expected a big giant boycott where they were going to lose billions of dollars in their market share. That didn't even enter their mind. To put it another way, they just assumed that all of us were so used to big companies dictating values to us that we would just go along with it, that we would agree with whatever came out of their corporate boardrooms. And because they were being all-inclusive in everything, that their market share would actually increase. Oops, didn't see that one coming, and it's been a blast to watch, my friends. But not everybody at these big companies believes in all of this stuff. Some people actually do want to make money, and one of those is a lady named Jennifer Say. She was the chief marketing officer for the Levi Strauss Company. At most large companies, the chief marketing officer is next in line for CEO, the big chair. That was until she started speaking out about all of the COVID policies that were happening in San Francisco and California. She had the gall to say that maybe we shouldn't keep kids out of school for an extended period of time, that maybe we were harming them and we would never be able to repair the damage that we were doing. In other words... Jennifer Say took a position that you typically hear from conservatives, that perhaps we might want to be critical of what the government is doing, that maybe they weren't telling us the truth about COVID-19. 
Well, that is not what the board at, at Levi Strauss wanted to hear. In fact, they were all in line with all of the shutdowns, all of the lockdowns, keeping kids out of school, the line of the Democrat Party. How dare she speak out? And so, after eight years of being the chief marketing officer for one of the largest companies in the world, they fired her. Interestingly enough, though, after she was fired, they offered her a million dollars if she would sign a non-disclosure agreement. If they thought that they were in the right, why did Levi Strauss want to pay such a high price to keep her quiet? Well, she refused. And now she's written a book about it. And you're going to love this title. It's called Levi's Unbuttoned. The left took my job, but gave me my voice. And we'll talk to her next. But first, an absolutely obscene profit timeout. This segment of the program is brought to you by the Buffalo Wool Company. They're the purveyors of the most incredible socks that you're ever going to put on your feet. Most people, when they think about summer, don't immediately think wool socks. Nope, those are things that you only wear in the winter. My friends, that is a bunch of bullcrap. The socks that the Buffalo Wool Company makes will keep you warm in the winter, but they will also keep you cool and dry in the summer. I'm telling you, my friends, these are the most incredible socks I've ever worn. To get you a pair, go to their website, thebuffalowoolco.com. Trust me, you're not going to be disappointed. And while we're talking about things that you should wear during the summer, you probably need a new hat. New Trend Hats has a wide variety of hats for both men and women. They make that really cool baseball cap with the ponytail hole on the back of them. They're a Wyoming-based company down in Kemmerer. So get you a new hat. Go to their website, newtrendhats.com. And now, back to the program. Jennifer Say was the chief marketing officer for the Levi Strauss Company. She quite literally reversed the course of a company that was facing bankruptcy. Not only that, she shepherded the company through COVID. You know, when all of the stores were closed and they couldn't sell a pair of jeans anywhere. But she decided to speak out against the COVID policies of the left and they fired her for it. Here's our conversation. Jennifer Say is the author of the book, Levi's Unbuttoned. I love that title. How the Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Jennifer, welcome to Cowboy State Politics. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time in your, in your busy schedule. So the first thing I always do on the program is just have you introduce yourself and tell my listeners about who you are. Yeah, Absolutely. Jennifer Say, as you stated, I live in Denver after many, many years, more than three decades in the Bay Area, San Francisco in particular. Um, I have a, a lot of things that, that I've done in my life. I spent my childhood as an elite gymnast, um, which definitely informs um, a lot of my views and stances I've taken in protection uh, of children. I uh, grew up in an environment that was pretty abusive, where children were 
seen and not heard. And in fact, if you spoke up and kind of challenged the practices, which were emotionally, physically abusive, and you know, now it's it's well known that there's widespread sexual abuse as well, you were you know, you risked your career, you're making the national team being kept on your club team, all sorts of things. So I grew up in a pretty oppressive environment in that regard. Um, and I've had to overcome a lot of that. Um, eventually, I left the sport. I, I had been a national team member for nine years, eight years, and I was the national champion in 1986. Um, unfortunately, left the sport pretty broken emotionally and physically and took me a long time to recover from that. But ultimately, I um, made a career in, in marketing and branding. I started at Levi's in 1999 as an entry-level marketing assistant, worked my way all the way up the ladder, became the chief marketing officer, held that post for eight years, was successful in the role and became the brand president and was next in line for CEO. Uh, but I was very outspoken about the harms that were being done to children because of closed public schools in places like San Francisco during COVID. And after a two-year internal struggle, battle, being told I needed to stop and me refusing to stop, I was pushed out of the company for my for my views, essentially, because our business was strong. Um, it was tough during, you know, lockdowns, of course, because our st- doors were closed, but we emerged really, really strong, um, doubled our stock price under my leadership as brand president, but was ultimately pushed out um, for my views. I took a a stance that was different than what the company was uh, advocating for. Now, you've got a couple children, right? Your mom? I got four kids. Yes. All public school kids. Yeah. Two are grown, 20 and 22, and two are quite young, six and eight. And those were the two that I was um, well, I was concerned about all of them. You know, I had the opportunity to see what it was doing to kids of all ages. You know, I had one in college, one in high school, uh, one in kindergarten and one in preschool. So I saw it all. And it was very uh, difficult for children of all ages, as you can imagine, not just the closures, but all the restrictions. Our playgrounds were closed for nine months in San Francisco. And when you live in a city and don't have a yard, um, there's nowhere for your children to play. And it wasn't really just about my children. You know, my children have every, um, you know, advantage you can imagine. Um, Strong Wi-Fi, a parent at home to help with the schoolwork. But online schooling is not school. It's not engaging. They can't learn that way. The isolation, uh, it doesn't matter if you have privilege or not. The isolation of an adolescent being at home alone in their room for 18 months is devastating. Uh, for any child. But, you know, it it wasn't hard for me to fathom that there were a lot of kids just a block away from mine that had far less advantage that perhaps were left home alone, uh, very young children or, you know, teenagers who needed to take care of their younger siblings while their parents went to work. Um, this was just not a tenable situation for children. And we're seeing the impacts of that now. Absolutely, we are. You know, in Wyoming, well, our governor says that he didn't close down the state and he didn't close down schools, but all of us that live here, we know no, that's, different. You well, know. they're all pretending they didn't do any of it now. You know, I, I get criticized. People say, what are you talking about? Schools were closed a couple of weeks. Move on already. And it's like a couple of weeks. I don't know where you were, but it was a year and a half in San Francisco um, I got the heck out of there after a year because there was no sign of them opening. So there's a real kind of gaslighting and reinvention of history happening. And then on top of that, you have 
leaders just sort of reversing, trying, attempting to reverse history and pretending they, in fact, were the ones to advocate for open schools. People like Randy Weingarten, people, um, you know, like Dr. Fauci, they're saying we wanted the schools open. Well, if you did, then you and I were on the same side and I wouldn't have lost my job because I lost my job because I contradicted you. (laughs) So, yeah, nice try saying you stood up for schools to be open now. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I had Governor Mark Gordon on my program. And I, I, you know, before the interview, uh, I'm pretty close with Representative Harriet Hageman. I asked her, I'm like, all right, if you could ask Mark Gordon one question, what would it be? And she said, well, ask him what he would do different. And I thought about it for a little bit. And I was like, oh, that's a good one. And so when I asked him, I just said, so, you know, all things being equal, what, what would you have done differently? And he said, well, you know, the, the way that we handled schools was a little messy. Uh, really? I mean, he closed down the state, the mask mandate, you know, the schools were closed for, I mean, several months. Wyoming is, yeah. as you know, Wyoming operates a little bit differently than probably any state in the country. Markets are different here. The schools are different. So, you know, we didn't experience a lot of the impacts that other states did, Mm -hmm. but they were still here. You know, my, yeah. You know, I have family that work in the school district and I mean, they flat say that, you know, kids are way behind. Oh, yeah. You know, where they where they were, you know, even even six months ago. Because the closures obviously set them back. And, you know, I've talked to children across the country, adolescents across the country. They simply didn't log in. They didn't, you know, the the, 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 the screen wasn't on. They're playing video games. They were doing whatever because it's not an environment conducive to learning. And they knew they were going to pass anyway. I mean, that was the guidance, right? Just pass them anyway. There's a lot of, you know, difficulty, trauma happening. And then they took those bad behaviors back into the classroom, which is why we see such high rates of absenteeism now. And and all the restrictions once kids did go back also were prohibitive in terms of learning. You know, the mask mandates, the distancing, like they didn't just have a normal environment where kids can learn. So it's no surprise that the learning loss is, is where it is. Um, at least at this point, we admit that it is a real thing. You know, in, in my state, California, my prior state, if you dared suggest that kids weren't learning and there would be loss, you were called a racist. It was a racist construct. There's no such thing as learning loss. Kids are just learning different things. No, they're not. They're not learning anything. And by the way, they're being told that they are inessential, that they are not important, their needs aren't important. And in fact, if they complain, they're really bad people because they don't care about anyone and they just want to kill old people. I mean, what we did, we did such a number on these kids. Um, I think there's just generational harm that's been caused, honestly. Oh, and I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, So let's kind of switch gears for a moment. You were the chief marketing officer at probably one of the largest companies in the country. First, what is a chief marketing officer? Like, what did you do? You write about it in your book, and I want to get to that a little bit later, uh, because what I read, I really liked what I read. First, what did you do? And second, could you describe the process for like how you were pushed out of that position? Yeah. Um, So as the chief marketing officer, you're sort of like... um, the leader of the brand, you decide and determine, you know, what is the, what is, what is the brand meaning? What do we want people to believe about the brand? Not just in terms of the product, but in terms of its personality and, you know, 
um, and all of that. And because Levi's as a brand, you know, when we talk about brand personality, not to be too cryptic, and this is why I think my story has resonated, it really, in in people's minds around the world, not just in America, it stands for rugged individualism. Um, it, it has. And so that's what's so kind of ironic. And I think what has connected with people as total hypocrisy, because I actually stood up as an individual, stated, you know, data backed, a data backed point of view around something that I really cared about. Ironically, I also ran a campaign called Use Your Voice. Um, but because what I was saying was in contradiction to, frankly, the Democratic Party and the left overall, um, that was not acceptable to use my voice in this way. But anyway, so, you know, we decide sort of what the brand stands for. And then we create content, advertising, um, et cetera, that connects with consumers to drive sales. Advertising can be anything from television to social media to influencer partnerships. Also, what is the experience in a store like? Um, I also ran all research and data insight, data collection that helped us determine how we should communicate. Um, there was a lot more, but that's the general, that's the general gist of it, if that, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So COVID happened and you were pretty vocal about, you know, your thoughts on obviously you you have pretty strong opinions. I think we all do about about COVID, certainly in Wyoming. After the interview, I'll tell you a funny story about okay. the governor. But so obviously your your ideas weren't quite in line with the uh, with the company thinking on that. So how did that all go down? Not great. Uh, <laughs> not good for me. Um, yeah, I was very vocal from the very beginning. I never had a moment of, okay, let's just lock down and see what happens. They're telling us it's just two to three weeks. Like from the very beginning, I was alarmed and I was looking at data and exploring sources beyond the mainstream media. Um, you know, not like weird rabbit hole sources, but actually um, data, you know, from Italy, where we saw, you know, we were all sort of regaled with these images coming out of Italy and these alarming headlines. But if you looked at the data and went a, a step deeper, you would see that the median age of death was above 80, which is above the average life expectancy of an individual, not just in Italy, but here um, in the U.S. So it seemed very clear from the beginning to me that there was significant age stratification of risk. So that is one reason that we should let kids go about their lives, right? It also was in direct violation of every pre-pandemic playbook from the CDC, which said closing schools is too great of a risk of harm to children. Um, school is necessary for not just their educational development, but their social and emotional well-being. Well, why do we throw that out the window? So I just sort of went way down in this rabbit hole. So I never at any point paused and said, okay, this seems like a good idea. I was against it from the beginning. It seemed there was no off-ramp. It seems we were lied to at every step of the way. They would say, this is going to happen. That wouldn't happen. And then it was all about the next thing. And no one seemed to care that they were just lying over and over again. So I was very alarmed. Um, I started my dissenting just on social media. I didn't have much of a following. I didn't think anybody would notice. But eventually, those of us who were against lockdowns, there weren't that many of us in the beginning. So we kind of found each other and I built a bit of a, a following. And by September of that year, I got my first call from a peer at Levi's um, who said, people are noticing, employees are noticing the things that you're saying and they don't like it. And I said, so? 
<laughs> exactly. And the irony in this, which you'll find amusing, is at this point it's September. So this peer that called me and all of my other peers had sent their children back to in-person school. So they were telling me, you cannot say and advocate for the thing that my children have. And I just went, no, that's that's not okay. All your hand-waving and arm-waving this summer about a quality of opportunity and, you know, disavowing your racism. This is the most structurally classist and racist thing I can imagine, closing public schools, which, by the way, in San Francisco are 60% low-income children. Like, that's who we're hurting here. And so I politely declined to stop. <laughs> and then the calls would come every other week for a year and a half. Employees complained. They called me terrible names in town hall meetings. They called me everything from, you know, a racist to a murderer and a conspiracy theorist, despite the fact that every quote unquote conspiracy um, came true. They, yeah, exactly. It, it all came true. Um, and it just was relentless. And, you know, on my executive team, I had, you know, a leader in corporate communication and a leader in HR who were frankly, kind of hysterical that I was daring to say these things as a as a mom of four, not as the leader of the brand. And, you know, there was a small and punitive group of employees who were complaining consistently. And eventually, after a year and a half, uh, my boss, the CEO, who had told me months earlier, I was next in line for his job, told me, you can't stay here. Um, because of the things you said. And the irony is by the time he told me this in January 22, everything I said had come true. But at that point, it was not about being right. It was about taking this view, which became political, that was aligned with the right in a company that aligns itself with the left. Well, and that is exactly the point. You know, like what you were saying had nothing to do with your job performance or, you know, the the performance of the brand or or anything. It was all politics. Well, and, you know, to to. Yeah, exactly. It was all it was all it was all politics. And that's what we're seeing. And I write about this quite a bit towards the end of the book and sort of predicted what we're seeing now happening is more and more. These companies are aligning themselves with the left. They're taking sort of left-wing values and causes and marketing them. And let me just be clear, they do it because they think that's what aligns with their consumers. They're going to like the brand and buy more. So it's a commercial calculation and it's misfiring. It's, it's a dumb one. As, it's a <laughs> dumb one. And what we see now, especially with big broad reach brands who have a real diversity of consumers, you know, Bud Light, Target, they're saying, no, I don't want polarizing politics. I just want product. And, 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 you know, what I, my recommendation, you know, so I sort of predict that this is going to start to divide consumers, they're going to feel alienated, they're going to abandon these brands that are shoving politics down their throat. We're seeing exactly that right now with Bud Light and Target. And that eventually we're going to get need to get back to normie capitalism, where you just market a product in a unifying and inspiring way with marketing. And you treat employees well. It's not that hard. And I, I think the thing, sorry, I, I'm kind of going on a tear here, but the thing is, is these woke stances they take, they don't even really mean it. It's a charade and it's all a cover for more unsavory business practices that, that kind of sit underneath of it. And I don't really understand why anybody buys it anyway, even those that embrace the politics. There's not real meaningful 
change happening in these organizations. They're, you know, running campaigns so that people like them. That's exactly. it. And you, what they're finding out is people don't like those. You know, I on my pro, on my live program this morning, I kind of ran down a quick list. Bud Light has lost $15.7 billion. So yep. just just on that point, I mean, you were you were next in line for CEO. So could you just comment on what a $15.7 billion loss would be at Levi's or any one of these companies? Well, and, and to be clear, that's not revenue, that's market capitalization. So yep. that's, that's their market cap, but that's significant. That's a huge stock price loss. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know how they recover at this point. I think they thought, because there've been boycotts in the past from both the right and the left. And they've not always like sort this. of ended- no, exactly. They've always fizzled and ended very quickly. Um, you know, I use the example of New Balance in my in my book back in I think 2017 when Trump won, the CEO said something favorable about Trump and how his policies would benefit New Balance and businesses. Well, the left went crazy. They burned their New Balances on um, social media, and that same year the brand grew seven percent. So. You know, it didn't really, it didn't stick. And New Balance, I will be, let's be clear, it's very popular in these left-wing enclaves like LA and Brooklyn. So that's who was buying it. So they might've burned their sneakers and gone out and bought new ones. So anyway, Bud Light thought, well, this will just fade and fizzle. And it didn't, it's still going. Sales are down 30% week on week. And and so, you know, it didn't help that the the marketing leader it just a week before the program in question came out was very insulting to the existing consumer base. Now, first rule in brand management is you put the consumer at the center of everything you do, and you certainly don't insult them. And if you are trying to grow your consumer base and attract new ones, you do it in a way that also protects the base, right? You can't just sacrifice all the consumers that made you great because you're not going to be able to replace them fast enough. So, And at this point, Bud Light has made both sides mad. Because the existing consumers are like, you know, F you, you're shoving politics down my throat that I don't agree with or believe in. And so they kind of backed away from that, which made the left wing activists mad because they didn't stand by this, um, you know, trans influencer. So now everybody's mad. I think the only way out is through at this point. I think they have to apologize. And I think they have to rebuild with their core consumer base and just forget about, you know, whatever punishment the left-wing activists are going to, you know, put on them because those people didn't drink Bud Light anyway. So that's not even a loss. Exactly. So you've got to rebuild with it. They, at this point, have to rebuild with the core consumer if they can do it. We'll get back to our discussion with Jennifer Say in just a second. But first, a few moments of completely self-interested capitalism. <laughs> Cowboy State Politics is brought to you by Morton Buildings. It's spring, which means it's time for you to start thinking about improvements to your property. If there's a building that you've been considering, then you should call my friends Nick and Jesse at Morton Buildings. Their phone number is 307-674-2532. They're the experts in metal building construction. 
They've been doing it longer than anybody else around, and they definitely do it better than anybody else around. You'll receive a 50-year warranty on the foundation, which is something that you're not going to get from any of their competitors. So it doesn't really matter what type of building you're thinking about. Just call Nick and Jesse. Again, their phone number is 307-674-2532, and they'll handle all the details. Or you can just check them out at their website at mortonbuildings.com. Gunrunner Auctions is one of the leading online auction houses in the country, and they're celebrating their 24th year. They specialize in estate firearms. Every month, beginning on the 7th, they post 500 fine firearms for sale, guns that you're not going to find anywhere else. What they do is Scott Weber, the owner, he first travels to the estate and appraises the firearms for the heirs. And then he takes them to his, to his Cody auction facility where he and his team research them, sometimes getting factory letters from the Cody Museum to learn about each firearm's history. So every month, starting on the 7th, they'll post 500 guns and they'll continue all the way through the end of the month. They only charge 15% for selling your precious firearms. All of the auctions start at 20 bucks, and there's no reserve. So if there's a gun you've been trying to find, or maybe there's one you didn't even know you were looking for, go to GunRunnerAuctions.com, and you'll find what you didn't know that you needed. New episodes of the program are published every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday morning. And don't forget about the Thursday live episode that starts every Thursday morning at 10 a.m., you can find the link to the live show at CowboyStatePolitics.com or on the Cowboy State Politics Facebook page. And now, back to our program. One of my favorite comments was from Michael Jordan uh, several years right. ago. I know. Some, yeah. Yeah. And a reporter asked him, hey, why don't why don't we ever hear you talk about politics? And his answer was, well, even Republicans have to buy shoes. And that is all he ever said. Yep. Now, my personal opinion of it is I really don't care what the political views of your corporate officers are. I don't care. Just make a good product, make beer, make right. jeans make a good yeah. motorcycle and stay the heck out of my life. And what we're seeing specifically in Wyoming, and it's fascinating, you know, there, there are bars that would go through, God, I don't even know, like in Laramie at the university of Wyoming in like 1972 or something, there was this article that came out in playboy and it was listing all the top 10 party schools. Yeah. And at the bottom was an asterisk. And it said, if you'll notice the university of Wyoming is not on our list. Uh, because we refuse to rate the professionals with the amateurs. <laughs> okay, so so even though Wyoming is a small state and the market is different um, in almost every respect, if you lose an entire state where you yeah. sell a lot of your product, um, yeah. you're obviously doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, for example, and you'll get a kick out of this, but 501s are the only pair of jeans that I actually have a butt in. Um, so, a lot of people say that you're not alone in that. Yeah. Right. And so, so I still buy them, but yeah. it's just because I happen to like the jeans and I well, don't, you and I don't feel that. Yeah. 
you raise a good point. You know, I think 501 is my favorite jean as well. I still wear it. And I think the, the thing that's really challenging for a brand like Bud Light is the product isn't actually different or better. Everything, you know, the reason people bought it was one, right price. Two, they liked the funny ads and they completely abandoned the funny ads. Those were unified. It made people laugh. It was kind of great. But let's face it. Bud Light's not really that different than Coors Light or Miller's Light. So it's super easy. And they're all distributed in the same place. So it's super easy to just switch. It's a little harder when the product is distinctive in the way you describe 501. You might be annoyed with the brand, but if you really, really, really like the product, you might stick with it anyway. But in an undifferentiated category like light beer, I don't know what happens. You know, that's really tough because there's plenty of great alternatives. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the boardroom in Golden, Colorado at Coors when this whole thing came down? I mean, I could just imagine it, right? Hey, we'll put John Wayne on a beer can, you know, Clint Eastwood. Well, the the interesting thing is they haven't done anything different. I mean, both Miller and Coors have, you know, seen an increase in sales as well as uh, Modelo, which I think has overtaken Bud Light for the number one share position. They haven't done anything different because I'm sure you're right. They debated like, okay, what do we do to capitalize that on this? And then they realized we don't have to do anything. Like we don't even have to take another side. We can just still play it straight up the middle. Talk about product like we always have. Make it fun. Make it funny. You know, whatever each of their brand campaigns are, they don't have to do anything. Because if they round the other side and, you know, that risks being just as polarizing. So just keep it like it is. And that's exactly what they've done. And they're all enjoying the upside of that without really changing course. There's a great story in your book where you're talking about filming a commercial. And I'm sorry, I wasn't able to read the whole book. I couldn't get it. Couldn't get it to Wyoming in in time for the interview markets in Wyoming. Anyway, there's there's a great story of how you're filming a commercial and like for a couple hours, they're focused on the moon. Uh, Could you just talk to me about that? Yeah, that was in 2003. Um, I was the marketing director for the U.S. And it was a night shoot. This is all relevant. I was also pregnant. I was about six or seven months pregnant, like not, you know, tired, frustrated. Um, and we're literally, you know, you, you have an advertising agency um, that that is responsible for delivering the, the kind of content. And I'm the marketing director. I'm there at the shoot to say, yes, we got it. Let's move on. Let's not. But you get strong armed. And I was pretty young and I hadn't quite found my voice, but I found it there. And at a certain point where uh, four hours in and they literally all they've been doing is filming the moon, as you say, the moon. And I'm like, what is going on? We're burning money here. Like we're behind schedule. And I said, we need to move on. Like, that's it. We've got the moon. And the the creative director and a lot of creative directors at ad agencies, they'll hate me for saying this, but they're like these frustrated, like film directors, you know, they, they, they think of themselves as artists, you know, and it's a commercial endeavor. So I said, the creative director got mad at me for saying, move on. And he said, it's the most important shot. We need to get it right. And I said, it can't be the most important shot because the genes aren't in it. That's the most important shot. And in every Levi's ad, you'll probably notice in the first five seconds, there's a shot of the butt. We called it the butt shot, <laughs> you know, because that's what makes a pair of Levi's a pair of Levi's. You know, it's the sti- arcuate stitching, the red tab and the leather patch. And eventually I was able to get him to move on, but I think it reveals the, you know, contradiction or the <laughs> sort of, um, 
you know, non-focus that some folks in creative industries might have, whereas I was very focused on the commercial realities, which is people buy Levi's, or at the very least, we need to make them believe they have to buy Levi's because this is the only acceptable way for your butt to look in a pair of jeans, right? Um, so we moved on, but it was a difficult, frustrating situation. And I think that and the, the analogy I would draw to now is the emphasis isn't on the moon, but it's on quote unquote values or politics. And there's a large um, cohort within corporate America that believes if we market these values, we'll get consumers to like us. And I would just sort of come back to, no, you have to market the genes. <laughs> so it's a great book. Um, and obviously you have more time to uh, to market it now since you're not selling genes, you're selling books. So um, had you been planning on writing a book for a while or did you get fired and then you're like, hey, I'll write a book about this? I had not been planning on writing a book. I did write a book in 2008. It came out in 2008. That was about my gymnastics experience. And that was, the, it was the first first person account of the abuse and cruelty in the sport. So I sort of got kind of canceled that time too. It was just amongst a smaller group of people. So I had my warm up period. You know, the smaller group of people was athletes, gymnasts, and the Olympic movement more broadly. Um, because you were not allowed to say the things I said at the time. Of course, those have all been proven true now, and everybody pretends they always stood with me. But no, I had no plan. I mean, I didn't have a plan. I was trying to keep my job by doing a good job in the role and also advocating for children. Those two things proved incompatible. And I lost my job in January of 22. And a few months after that, I decided I would write a book about it. I, I, I certainly had not... Planned it, and I wrote it really fast in the summer of 22 in just a couple months. Okay, so uh, what's the focus of the book? I mean, is it is it about like the experience of children in public schools and your your view of it, or is it about your corporate career and what happened? It's, I mean, it's a memoir. You know, it's my experience, uh, my corporate career, not just during my COVID dissenting years, but everything leading up to that. Um, it does cover some of my advocacy in gymnastics because that was like a blueprint for me, you know, and I thought as I was advocating for kids in schools, um, the same thing will happen. People will realize that this is true. Children are being harmed and everyone will come around. Well, eventually that happened, but not in time for me to keep my job. So it's a memoir. I do get into some detail about kind of recounting what the experience was like during COVID and lockdown if you lived in a deep blue city in a deep blue state. Um, and I, I, I try to convey how alarming it all was and how illiberal and, and just such an egregious violation of our basic civil rights, you know, that forced me to stand up and advocate for children in particular. Um, but I do venture into woke capitalism because, of course, alarm bells went off for me during this time and I began to see everything in hindsight quite differently. Um, and so there is an analysis of world capitalism. Ultimately, what I hope is it's an inspiration for people to use their own voices to stand up for the things they care about. That was my hope in writing the book. There's a passage that I really love where you're talking about free speech. People use that phrase in order to uh, say that you know their voice can't be canceled. But what we really mean by free speech, speech is it's free speech for everyone. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like when you boil it all down, what the First Amendment really means is that the only right you have is the right to be offended. 
right? If somebody can't, if somebody can't say something that pisses you off, well, then we don't have free speech. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I talk to other folks, like I don't, I don't care if you disagree with me and you're furthering a point of view that is different than mine. I will go to the map for you to be able to say that thing. <laughs> That's what's important because my free speech protects yours and yours protects mine. The other point I would just make is free speech, yes, is a value in and of itself. We, we don't live in a free society if we don't have it. But the, the larger point, I guess, is if we don't have it, we can't debate openly the issues that matter and we can't actually find truth. You know, we've now seen over the course of COVID that many voices, including my own, were silenced, but not just mine. Respected, renowned doctors were silenced and shunted off to the side. If we had actually had a society-wide conversation about this, I think we could have gotten to a different answer sooner. But we didn't. We silenced those who dissented um, and manufactured consensus. That's incredibly dangerous. That's an authoritarian regime when you manufacture consensus based on talking points from the government. So that's why I wasn't willing to stop talking just to keep my job, because I, I want to live in a democracy. The left invented cancel culture because their ideas won't survive in a free marketplace of ideas. You know, you right. can't you can't impose your view on somebody else without, you know, in any way. Right. You have to respect their position as well. You may not have to you may not agree with it. I mean, I'm sure that that you and I probably disagree on a number of different things. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have you on my program and talk about something that, you know, I, I think is incredibly important. Well, it also doesn't mean that you think I'm evil because I hold a different view. Um I find when I talk to people that disagree with me, if we can have a reasoned debate that doesn't just sort of deteriorate into name calling, that I usually learn something. I might reconsider my position or I might strengthen my position. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it makes me um, certainly a more empathetic and curious and interested person. And uh, this whole thing where like people we disagree with are evil and need to be canceled and banished, that's like the last 10 years, that did, maybe 15, that didn't used to be how it was. And, you know, in terms of how that has impacted the political parties, it used to be you could be in a party and not agree with every tenet of the platform. On either side, you know, you, you could. There was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. There was such a thing as a pro-choice Republican. That is not the case anymore, because if you hold any view that is in contradiction with the party, you're considered evil, violent, a murderer. Everything is genocide. I mean, it's just insane. <laughs> and so I have no party now. I don't want to participate in any of that. I'm just an independent and I'll vote for the folks that best represent my values. But it's just become so crazy. And I think the only way to overcome it is for people like you and me to talk to each other, even if we disagree, you know, to sort of model the behavior. Because if you give into it, you just accept defeat and you give up believing that free speech actually matters. You're exactly right. It amazes me, like the the folks that come out of the woodwork when you when you state one of your opinions. And it doesn't really matter what it is. If you want to know how many friends you are, uh, you have run an, yeah. run an undercover investigation uh, at the University of Wyoming that exposes how they're training drag queens. You'll find out exactly how many friends you have. 
you know, but it's we have to have those conversations. And I, I think what what is perhaps more dangerous than cancel culture, and it would be kind of a good race, but what is more dangerous is not having the conversation. And leaving uh, yeah, exactly leaving those things in the background to let them fester yes. or whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah, I I, I couldn't um, agree more. But the, the, the function that cancel culture serves, because people in San Francisco, they sort of watched the dragging that I was getting, right? It, 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 it was clear that if I hadn't lost my job yet, I was probably going to lose it soon. That makes other people quiet. That, you know, we the other people, even if they agree, they self-censor at that point without even being told to without being kicked off platforms. They just go, oh, gosh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go right. through what she's going through. Um, and that's just so incredibly dangerous. I mean, that's what we have seen in totalitarian regimes. You know, that's how they keep the populace obeying and silent and believing things that are clearly or pretending to believe things that are clearly not true that they probably don't believe anyway. So I all I can do is try to break through that by continuing to say what I think is true and hopefully encouraging others to do the same. The sad part, and I learned this during COVID and I didn't think it was true before, maybe you knew it before me, <laughs> most people would rather stand with the group than do what's right. That's every most time. people. Every time. Well, I mean, I guess that's that's a little unfair. I mean, there are people that we push them far enough and they'll yeah. stand up. Uh, but you're you're right, you know, that it is I much think they easier. Come around. Yeah, they come around eventually. You know, if I use my gymnastics, you know, like I was the first elite level gymnast that spoke out about this. All these people that were in my same training environment were like, you're lying. That's lying. That's not true. They knew it was true. They trained side by side with me. None of them could, um, you know, choose any story that I told and say that it was untrue. But the incentives are not there. You know, they're they're conditioned to sort of support and lionize their coaches and the heads of USA Gymnastics and present this image that is completely false. And if they want to be in good standing with the community, which is the only community they've ever known, they support this false narrative. And I was saying, we can't because children are being harmed. Well, eventually everybody came around. It took 10 years and the horrific case of Larry Nasser being exposed, but people do that come guy's around. a monster. Yeah, and that and then they do it, but they they sort of wait until there's a big enough cohort that they're not standing alone. <laughs> well, I think the most important thing for people like yourself and and me to some degree, the most important thing that we can do is to stand up and show show others that you you do have a voice. The only way that they can truly shut you up is to, you know, kill you or take away everything you have, which they will try. They will. I lost a lot. Yeah, I mean, I um, left a city that I had loved and lived in for 35 years. I lost a lot of friends, if not most. All my colleagues, thousands of them, have don't speak to any of them. And I was there 23 years. These people were like family. You know, I went to baby showers. I hosted baby showers, weddings, funerals, all of it. I don't have any of those folks anymore. Some family members um, don't speak to me. So, And I, I don't have a job. So certainly lost a lot. But I couldn't sacrifice my integrity to be quiet on something I thought was just of critical importance, kids and free speech. If you don't stand up for that, then you have no backbone and you don't care about anything. That's how I feel. Right. And those are those are some of the things that I look at. And I'm like, how can you not defend little kids? 
I mean, <laughs> if you don't, well, if you're not going to protect them, you're not going to protect anybody. Yeah, it's interesting because I made that. I, I I was very calculated in focusing everything that I talked about on children. I didn't talk about lock, lockdowns more broadly, though I was very opposed to that as well. I thought kids are the bridge. Who doesn't want to stand up for kids? I was wrong. A lot of people don't. Another investigation I did was uh, another uh, drag show. It happened at Rock Springs, which it's interesting. In Wyoming, there's this prevailing opinion that a lot of these things are not happening here. Well, this is Wyoming. You know, that that stuff can't happen here. And the truth is, uh, it, it probably happens just about everywhere. Maybe not everywhere, but, you know, it's m- way more prevalent than you think. And yeah. the reason you don't know about it is the media won't report on it. And it's pushed back into the background. And so I've got this undercover video where there's a show going on and God, I don't know, there's a dozen kids running around. I saw that and it just turned my stomach and I was like, okay, what what can I do to really expose this? And so um, I did the report on the university. Um, they spent a lot of taxpayer dollars putting that thing on, by the way. And uh, so I cornered the university president with the video. And the video from the school is pretty shocking. And I showed it to him on my tablet. His response, I don't even think the guy really cared. Like, I looked him in the eye. And it was it was almost like, yeah, I don't see a problem with this. And so the last thing I want to ask you, well, maybe not the last thing, but one of the last things, is you kind of get the opinion that there's people like yourself in these corporate offices that don't go along with... Uh, you know, the or don't believe in the company line. Um, how prevalent is that? I mean, at a, at a big company like Anheuser-Busch or Levi's, I mean, how many people do you think in the boardroom are actually thinking, well, I don't I don't agree with all this stuff? That's a great question. Um, I don't think any of at least amongst the executive class, I don't think any of these are firmly held beliefs or principles. I think it's all a money making strategy. Um, you know, they, they really, they're calculated. Well, first of all, they don't know people who disagree with them. They live in New York and California and in their little bubble, these views are applauded. And so whether they're not deeply held views though, their only deeply held views is they want to, is the view is that they want to make a lot of money. (laughs) So they see this as a way to deliver revenue and profit. You know, they're not CEOs because they want to save the world, no matter what they tell you. They're CEOs because they want to make a lot of money. So that's the hypocrisy of that is what really sort of drives me my, me crazy. But in the world today, that's not really lauded. It used to be, but, you know, greed is no longer good and you're supposed to disavow your privilege. So all these executives pretend that they really are altruists and philanthropists, and it's a lie. So that's the first thing. But then there's this group think that takes over and they really believe that this is the best way to deliver profit for the brand while doing good. I think there are a lot of people, though, that sit there and scratch their heads. And then you have this activist class of young employees who proselytize in the workplace and they're afraid of those young employees and they're afraid of the consumers and they're they're afraid of everyone. Um, and all somebody needs to do is stand up and be normal. You know, I, I, I think a, a, an example I use in the book is the, the guy from Netflix, Ted Sarandos. There were all these protests in 2021 that were predicted to be much larger than they were about Dave Chappelle's program, The Closer. Um, they weren't very big. 
you know, a handful of employees showed up to protest. They wanted the, the show taken off the platform. He said, we're not taking it off the platform. We have a lot of different kinds of people who watch our, who watch Netflix. If you don't like it, then don't work here. And it was over. And, you know, it, it seemed crazy that that took courage, but it, it did. And it just was over with that. I don't really understand why more can't do that, but they don't. And they're just sort of overly influenced by these young, loud employees <laughs> and by their friend group. And by believing um, that it's going to work, even though we're seeing now it doesn't. And liking the praise. You have to also remember, they get a lot of praise for taking these stances. They get featured on the cover of Forbes. You know, the press lauds them. We saw it with Elizabeth Holmes and Sam Bankman fried And it's like a way to avoid scrutiny from the press and conceal all the less savory practices. <laughs> well, and that's just it. I mean, it's I think you you hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of group think that goes on and there's yeah. a lot of fear. You know, yeah. I I cover mostly politics. And so a lot of what I see happens in the legislature you can take a guess at the loudest lobby group. Um, yeah. It's not the conservatives. You know, it's not the oh. gun lobby, though, though, with uh, if you take a shot at pun intended, if you take a shot at the Second Amendment, we can get pretty loud. But it's it's the left. It's the LGBTQ lobby. And, you know, they're they're the ones that will drag your name through the mud, or at least they will try. So uh, it's a great book. I only got to read a couple chapters of it, but I'll talk you into sending me a copy and I'll read the rest of it. Okay. Sounds good. So where, if people want to check out your book again, it's called Levi's unbuttoned the woke mob took away my job and gave me my voice. Uh, where can people find it? Where would you like them to find it? The best place is Amazon and you can get it in hardback. You can get it in audio, which I do the reading and you can get an ebook. Um, yeah. Amazon. I mean, any place books are sold online. All right, and I'll throw a link to it on the website so people can go check it out from there. Awesome. Well, Jennifer, Thanks. thank you very much for taking the time to visit with me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I like may we I would love to talk about the things we actually disagree on. I think uh, it's important to model those behaviors as well. There's a lot of important things that Jennifer had to say. Among them, free speech. If all of us don't have free speech, then none of us do. We have to respect the opinions of other people. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with them, but we certainly have to respect them. And just because you have somebody in your company that doesn't agree with the company ethos, that doesn't mean that you should fire them. In fact, you should probably embrace their thinking. Secondly, until companies realize that consumers don't want to be dictated to, we don't want to be told what to believe, what to think, and we certainly don't want a company that shoves their ideology down our throats, knowing full well that we don't agree with them. These boycotts will continue until companies finally come to their heads and stop doing that. Like I said during the interview, I don't really care what your board of directors thinks. Just make beer, make jeans, make a good motorcycle, and leave me the heck alone. Last, all of these companies have made a serious miscalculation. You know, they think that they're on the right side of history and that in the end, consumers will reward them for their inclusivity. Not realizing, of course, that the truth is, they're in the extreme minority. Bud Light should have figured that out by now, and so should Target, for that matter. Kohl's, Harley-Davidson, all of them. My advice is to find a product that you're happy with. 
find a company that reflects your values, and then do business with them. There are so many independent companies that are not associated with these big, huge corporations like Target or Walmart or any of them. Search those out and do business with them. It's called capitalism. If you're tired of having an agenda shoved down your throat, then stop buying their product and find somebody else. One last thing before I let you go for today's episode. Jennifer Say and I are not on the same end of the political spectrum. I'm a conservative, and you heard her say that she's mostly an independent. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a good conversation and that we can't learn something from each other. You just have to be open to having the debate. And that's something that these woke companies, their marketing organizations, and the lobbyists that are pushing them don't want to have, simply because the views of the left will not succeed in a free marketplace of ideas. So they have to cancel you. They have to censor you, and they have to make sure that the truth of whatever it is that you're talking about doesn't come out into the open, because they can't compete with them. A couple of program notes. I am finally taking a much-deserved vacation. In the two and a half years of Cowboy State Politics, I haven't taken one. And so, I'm going to. So for the next few episodes, all the way through next Wednesday, Representative Ken Pendergraft is going to fill in for me on the program. As I understand it, he's got a number of guests lined up, and it should be pretty enjoyable to listen to. I'll be back for next Saturday's installment of Weekend Update. But for now, from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics.